so we are going to finish this, uh, this sermon series on the church this morning. And so if you do have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14 is where we're going we're gonna to get to in just a, in, in just a while. Um, we do have a lot to cover this morning, so, so, so bear with me uh, as, we, as we get going and as we, we get started. Last time we were together, we dealt with the question, how does the church grow? And how does the church grow? It grows through maturing in discipleship, right? It goes through maturity through discipleship. So just because a church may be taking on more numbers and there's more butts in the seats and, and there's more people coming, that doesn't mean a church is growing. But growth in a church, church growth, biblical church growth, is when the members are growing together in Christ, in discipleship, and in maturity. Discipling, as we said, is life-on-life relationships in the church, doing spiritual good for one another, and where each member takes discipleship responsibilities for one another that is appropriate. So, all that's really good. Discipleship is really good. However, when doing this life-on-life relationships and, and being together for discipleship, inevitably there is the potential for things to get messy. There is a potential for, for things, to, uh, things to come up to the surface, for friction to uh, occur, and for very good reason, because we are sinners. We are sinners, and in our sin, those things will come to the surface, even though we may not even know it, and we will act sinfully toward one another. Being in a family is a wonderful gift, but it doesn't always go to plan. It's not always easy, and it's not always pretty. And that brings us to our last question this morning, and that is, how does the church relate to one another? How do we relate to one another on, in these life-on-life <clears throat> discipling relationships and friendships and brotherhood and sisterhood? How do we do that? Jesus tells us to love our neighbor. He even says to love our enemies. And Galatians 6.10 says, do good to everyone and especially those who are of the household of the faith. So what we see here is not only Jesus telling us that we are to love everyone, including our enemies, including our neighbors, but Paul goes on more specifically in Galatians and says there is a special particular way in which you are to love one another in the church, how you are to love those who are in the household of faith and do good to one another who are in the fellowship. So there's a love by which you are to love me and to by which I am to love you that is required and that is different than to anyone else. Our church covenant tells us to love one another and to consider their interests in higher regard than our own. And in doing so, we must consider our responsibility of Christian freedom and to not use our freedom to cause others to stumble. This kind of love doesn't always come easy. In fact, it can get messy and it can become 
tricky and it can, can become hard to understand on how to love one another in these ways. Now, we are a pretty homogenous group, meaning we are pretty much alike in many ways. Most of us have grew up in a Christian home or a Christian context. We're all pretty much from the same region, location, or has, which has the same cultural ideas, except for Keith and Beth. Um, but the rest of us were from the South. Oh, and Miss Karen, Wisconsin. Uh, you know how it is. But that's okay. We all pretty much share the same ideals and culture and stereotypically, according to the world, we would all be lumped into the same demographic with very low intersectionality scores for those who know what I'm speaking of. And even though we are the same in many ways, we still have differences. We have differences. We have differences in our preferences. We have differences in our consciences. We've grown up in different families that have different values and sometimes even differing morals of importance and ethics. We have different backgrounds. We have different standards of right and wrong on particular issues. There are areas where we differ. And if we are going to be a church that truly loves one another, that knows how to relate to one another, then we need to recognize these differences are there and that these differences will arise and and this is the hard part the hard part is not then allowing those differences to destroy us and to destroy our relationships this is one of the biggest reasons why many churches have turmoil and have turmoil in them because they don't know how to deal with the personal preferences and the personal differences, and the, and the conscience. How a church deals with, with those who have a freedom to drink alcohol, or to those who choose to restrict and to abstain. That issue has never caused any problems, has it? Should a Christian parent homeschool? Should they private school? Should they send their children to public school? Hasn't this past year and a half unearthed all kinds of opinions and preferences that are called science and truth and that have caused divisions among brothers and sisters and churches and have divided many? Think with me how many other things we could come up with that could and has divided the church, but yet they are only matters of the conscience. The Bible tells us that our conscience is important. Our conscience is important. The conscience is, is addressed over 30 times in the New Testament. And even though the Bible teaches on the conscience, we often could fail to give our consciences and other people's consciences the the care that it deserves. And when we as the church become aware, however, of our consciences, of our own and others, then we will strengthen our unity. We will strengthen our evangelism. We will strengthen our discipleship and our 
mission. So what do I mean when I say the conscience? Well, it's not the little cricket trying to persuade you not to lie, nor is it, nor is it the angel on your shoulder or demon, I guess, depending on who you are, right? To convincing you to do something that you know you should do or know that you shouldn't do. Your conscience is your consciousness. It's your awareness and the sense of your awareness. It's what you believe to be right and wrong. Now, I don't mean moral relativism here, where everybody can have different truths of, of right and wrong, because our consciences are, are not always right. God has set for us the standard of what right and wrong truly is. So then what do we mean then by the matters of the conscience? Well, what's really helpful for us is to look at theological triage um, that was given, I think that was coined by uh, Dr. Albert Muller. And according to theological triage, he says that scripture determines to us what is most important, what we address first. And so, for example, 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul tells us in his writings of what is of first importance. And he says the resurrection of Christ, the gospel. The gospel is of what its first importance. Biblical doctrines are the first importance. The resurrection, as we just said, is of first importance. These are the things that are urgent. These are the things that are most necessary and priority according to the scripture. These are level one foundational things, the doctrines and the beliefs that you must hold to in every way in order to be a Christian in any meaningful sense. The Trinity, the virgin birth, inerrancy, the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture, the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, penal substitutionary atonement, justification, etc. But I also believe there as well that the morals and ethics taught throughout the Scriptures here that fall under biblical ethics, the very things that marks us off as Christians. These are the things that are necessary. And then there are level two. There's these are issues then that can separate Christians into different churches and different local denominations. These issues could be baptism. They could be issues of church government or sovereignty of God the role of men and women in the church. These things divide churches and denominations, but you don't have to hold to any particular view in order to be a Christian. However, for any of us within our church to hold a differing view other than these would be, would be tough to continue in unity. So they are important, especially for us. And then there is the third level. And in the third level are the matters of the conscience, the Sabbath, tattoos, alcohol, schooling, the kind of car you drive, politics, economics, eschatology, makeup, clothes, sports, Santa Claus, Halloween, medicine, music, food, and diet, translation of the Bible, unless you're using the New Living Translation or the Message, end times view, and, or the NIV, or how you interpret certain passages, etc. 
Now, we're not talking about the clear biblical morals taught within the Scripture. Those things are not third-level matters of the conscience that you get to decide. Sexual ethics, fornication, pornography, these are things that are not up to debate when it comes to Scripture. These are not third-level. Clear biblical doctrines are not third-level. These are the issues of life that the Bible then still gives us freedom to decide with wisdom and discernment and taking into consideration what is good for us and what is good for our family and what is good for others. All these issues are very important. They're very important issues. And each one of us may land on a different side or a different issue. And even if we do, that should not divide us. Not all of us see eye to eye on everything. And yet, we should be able to enjoy close fellowship. Praise God, right? Because of Christ. And yet, the things that are most often dividing a church are often in this third level of the matters of the conscience. And here's where all of us need humility. Because, because our growing desire as a Christian should be for our consciences then to be shaped more and more, not by the world, but by the Word of God. Because in humility, we know that our consciences are not perfect. None of us have aligned ourselves perfectly with God's will. So what we first must do is to learn to calibrate our consciences. John Calvin said, a bad conscience is therefore the mother of all of heresies. A bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. We cannot afford to have bad consciences. Martin Luther was ready to go to jail to lose his life in order to maintain a good conscience. When asked to recant of his beliefs and writings of the Reformation at the Diet of Worms, he said, unless I am convicted by the Spirit and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against my conscience is neither right nor safe. God, help me. Here I stand. I can do no other. Amen. And what he is saying here is we need good, reliable consciences for such times as this. For these times, we need to hold our consciences to be shaped. We need them to be shaped. And we need to keep and hold to our consciences as they are shaped by God's Word. Every time I pick up my guitar to play, I tune my strings. Sometimes I can hear and tell if they are out of tune when a certain string is out. But my ears are not always trustworthy. I use a quality tuner. We want to have good tuners for our consciences. 
Think of all the things that are trying to tune your conscience. Media, culture, entertainment, sports, politicians, social media, even friends and family that are seeking to influence your conscience. But we as Christians must understand we have the truest of tuners. It's the tuner that Martin Luther relied upon. Unless I'm convinced otherwise by reason or by faith in the word of God, I cannot violate my conscience. The tuner that God has given us to calibrate our consciences is his word. The Lord has given us his word as the sole authority to reveal himself to us and to show us how to live according to his word and to calibrate our consciences of what is right and what is wrong. So according to the Bible, let me give you two rules when it comes to your conscience. Two rules when it comes to your conscience. First, the first rule when it comes to your conscience is to obey it. Do not violate your conscience. Do not violate your conscience. If you do not want to get a tattoo as a matter of conscience, then don't get a tattoo. If you don't want to participate in Halloween or give out candy, then don't. If you don't want to drink alcohol, then don't. Don't violate your conscience. A year ago, when the city mandated masks for all public gatherings and all public places, we decided as elders that we were not going to consent, consent not to be rebels and not to be zealous or to make some protest, but we decided to not consent on the grounds of not wanting to violate each other's consciences. If you do not want to wear one, then please do not wear one. But we are not going to burden the consciences of those who do not want to wear one by mandating or requiring that everybody wear one. The same goes for other issues. So the first rule of our con uh, of, to our conscience is to obey it. But the second rule, very important, is that when your conscience collides with the Lord's standards, you always submit yourself to the Lord's standard. When your conscience rule that you are trying to obey or wanting to obey collides with God's standards, with God's uh, word, then you always submit yourself to God's word. This is the tuning. This is the calibrating. This is where calibrating takes place. Teaching ourselves not to put our consciences or to put our, our consciences under the lordship of Christ. How do you know the difference then between sinning against your conscience and calibrating? Well, first... You're sinning against your conscience when you believe your conscience is speaking, direct, uh, speaking correctly and you refuse to listen to it. If you believe that you should not drink a Dr. Pepper as a matter of the conscience and you drink a Dr. Pepper, then you are sinning against your conscience. Second, you know you are calibrating, however, 
when Christ teaches you through his word that your conscience has been incorrect. That really there's nothing wrong with a Dr. Pepper. And the word calibrates us to obey his word and not our consciences. And that then calibrates us to understand truth and to submit to God's word than our conscience. And our conscience then becomes calibrated to God's word. The word trains us in order for us to be completely convinced that the Dr. Pepper is okay and that it's not evil and that it's not sinful. And even if the little warnings and the little red flags may go off, you know that you are not sinning when drinking a Dr. Pepper. An example of calibrating in the Bible is in Acts chapter 10. When God gave Peter a vision of unclean animals, and that the Old Testament forbade them to eat in a vision, what does God tell Peter? He says to kill them and eat them. And Peter tells God no three times. No, God, these are unclean. I haven't eaten, I don't need any of those. His faith in Christ was not weak. But in the area of food, in these matters, this part of his conscience was weak. And God was recalibrating, the Lord was recalibrating it for him to understand that now these things are no longer unclean, but now clean. God was calibrating Peter. And it was absolutely necessary for what was about to come because God was about to send Peter to an unclean people, the Gentiles, to share the gospel. Now how, so now he would have faith to accept the food and the people that he previously could not do. If you have certain convictions on things, then ask yourself, are they truly based upon Scripture? We need to learn what in the Scripture about our convictions and then apply God's Word appropriately to them. As parents, we do this with our children. In the church, we do this when in discipleship. We help one another in understanding these things and rightly applying God's Word. It may take years of calibrating depending upon the conviction. Again, take Peter. He clearly calibrated him, but later he lapsed and he failed again when he refused to eat with Gentiles in Antioch and Paul had to correct him. Some have found it easier in their Christian life just then to make lists. I'm just going to make a list of all the, these do's and don'ts, and I'm, I'm going to apply them to myself, and then I'm going to apply them to everyone else. This is where the, the use of alcohol became a universal sin for everyone. But clearly, in the Bible, it's drunkenness that is the sin. The churches and people took what was sin and wrote down the list instead of Drunkenness, which does destroy lives and families, they shifted the pendulum all the way over in one direction in order to 
to protect everyone and therefore just said consuming of any kind of alcohol is sin. And the Bible calls that legalism. Regardless of what you believe about the issue, what's obvious, though, is that we need to learn to, to calibrate and recalibrate our hearts and our minds and our consciences according to God's word and let it shape us and not the other way around. God's word shapes us. We calibrate our consciences so that we will be obedient. And so we calibrate so that we can relate to one another. We can understand the world and we can understand one another. And in our relationships, we can understand the world in truth. You see, the first century church was not immune to these kind of relational problems. They needed God's word. They needed the, the gospel to, to constantly recalibrate them and their consciences because there were differences. There were problems that continually arise among the people. You see, the church was typically made up of Jews and Gentiles. The Jews came from a, a religious culture that put a premium on the certain kinds of food that you ate and circumcision and the holy days. And they carried these beliefs and these, these, conscience, these matters of the conscience into their life as Christians. They carried it into the, their new faith as Christians. And then on the other hand, there's these Gentiles who honestly, they had no issue with anything. So they, they would eat and they would drink and they would celebrate holy days and, and not know at all what to do. And these differences became a problem. And it began to divide the church between Jews and Gentiles. Jews would sit on one side, Gentiles would sit on another. Now, whenever that happens, that is not good. That is not a good thing for churches to become divided in any way based upon any other identity than being in Christ. And so the, addressing the division, Paul says in Galatians 3.28, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Gentile Christians who had strong consciences in certain areas, they begin to exercise their freedom regardless of their Jewish brothers. It's my right. I can do what I want. It's my freedom to do these things. And then on the other side, Jewish Christians who had weaker consciences in those issues and in other issues, they believe that if, hey, it's a sin to eat certain meat or meat that's been sacrificed to idol, and they had the idea that any Christian who eats this meat or observes certain uh, holidays, you are not just sinning against me, but you are sinning against God. And worse, you may not even be a Christian if you do so. They begin to take extreme positions. They were being judgmental of each side, and they were diminishing each other. And in the meantime, as they diminish each other, judging one another, they begin diminishing the gospel and destroying the unity of the church by letting their consciences divide them. Now, in Romans 14 and 15, Paul, instead of laying down the law, laying down the law on them and just saying, you guys are being dumb. You're being immature. 
you need to get along, and you need to forget this mess. No. He shows them how to relate to one another in love. So let me give you a few principles from Romans 14 and 15 on how to relate to each other on the matters of the conscience. Romans 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. I'll stop right there. Here's what he means here. This is the first point. Welcome those who disagree with you. Welcome those who disagree with you. Weak does not mean weak in saving faith. It means that a person has a weak faith or a weak conscience in a particular issue of of self-judgment. And even if the act is not a sin, but for them it would be. Faith to eat and faith in Christ are not completely unrelated, however, because the more you understand what faith in Christ means, the more that you will be set free on these unnecessary regulations that you may place upon yourself. So if you are strong on an issue, be kind and welcoming to those who are weaker. Because guess what? I guarantee there are issues in your life where you are weak. And therefore, we must be kind and welcoming with those who we disagree with. Verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master master, that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. So here's the point. Those who have freedom must not look down on those who who don't, and those who have restricted consciences must not be judgmental toward those who have freedom. The strong are tempted to look down and to despise on those who are more strict because they begin to believe that they're not as mature as you are, and therefore they can't enjoy the the full freedom found in Christ. And therefore, since I'm enjoying it, I must be more free than they are, more mature, and that makes me better in some weird childish way. But the same goes for those who have a weak conscience, who want to be judgmental in their strictness. They believe that they are more godly, that if I abstain from these things, that makes me more godly. However, the context Paul gives us is is this warning. He says, God has welcomed them. God has welcomed them. So how can you be a judge of them or reject them if God has welcomed them? If God is letting them hold to those third-level views and hold those matters of the conscience, the question has to be asked, why can't you? What's your problem? Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Meaning, 
when we look down on the weaker or pass judgment on the stronger, we are acting as if they should be our servants and that we are the master. Those who come up with their own rules and restrictions and then they want to apply them to others want to become the master. But God is the master. Let him do the work of correcting when correcting and calibrating is needed through his word and through discipleship. And he may use you to help them through discipleship, but it will not be to look down or to judge them. Look at verse 5. One person esteems a day better than another, like my birthday. I think my birthday is a, a good day. While others esteems all days alike, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Meaning each believer must be fully convinced of their position in their own consciences. This is why I said rule number one is to obey your conscience. You see, the principle is the holy days are the illustration. The principle is, is that on a disputable matter, these third level, these matters of the conscience, each person should obey their conscience. That doesn't mean our consciences are always right. They need to be calibrated to better fit God's will. But you cannot constantly sin against your conscience and be a healthy Christian. You cannot. None of us have perfectly matched our standards. By that very fact, we should each have a spirit of humility as we relate to one another to encourage and to love the weaker brother or sister in these matters. We are all supposed to be doing the hard work to understand God's will through his word, and that means some of us will have to add rules to our consciences. And it also means that some of us will have to take some away. But this is a hard work for us all, a work that can take a lifetime, but a work that the Word of God will do, a work that the Holy Spirit will do, a work that we will do together as the church. Look at verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks, gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to him, and none of us dies to him. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Assume that others are partaking, refraining for the glory of God. Do you see what he says here about how generous we are to be to each other who have differing views? wears a mask, doesn't wear a mask, gets the vaccine, doesn't get the vaccine. 
weak or strong. We are to assume the best for those who are different and different from us. Wouldn't it be amazing, or isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing to be in a church where everyone would give each other the benefit of the doubt on their differences? We would give them the benefit of the doubt that they celebrate Halloween and they can do so to the glory of God. They can celebrate Christmas and put a Christmas tree up in their house to the glory of God. And we can assume that they are doing that for the glory of God or to one who does not. They can do that for the glory of God. But instead, isn't the, the natural man, the natural heart, wants to put the worst possible spin on everything. Our positions may be different on many different issues, but the same motivation is there to honor and glorify God. Look at verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or why do you despise your brother? For we all have, we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess. So then each of us will give an account to himself, to, of God, of himself to God. So do not judge one another in these matters because we will stand before the judge. If we gave more thought to ourselves, the calibrating of our own consciences and our own situation, we stand before God, we would be, most, we would be less likely to pass judgment on other Christians in these issues. These matters where we might disagree with one another, we just need to mind our own consciences and trust in God as the final judge. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, You are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one whom Christ has died. Your freedom may be correct, but don't let your freedom destroy the faith of another. Yes, weaker Christians and stronger Christians have a responsibility toward one another. A good rule of thumb is is that if you are stricter than God, then you need to be calibrated. But these verses address the stronger Christian because a stronger conscience means you are strong in a particular issue and therefore being strong, you have the choice to partake or to abstain where the weak person does not. So use it wisely is what Paul is saying. What the word of God is telling us is to to use your choice wisely and use it for the good of all. Our freedom is not to be used to abuse 
the weaker or to cause them to sin against their conscience in any way or to stumble. Like the strong, like Christ, we give up our freedom in order for the weak to live so that they one day in the Lord will grow in that area. Look at verse 16. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for the mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. He says disagreements about eating and drinking are not what is important in the kingdom of God. Building each other up in righteousness, peace, and joy. That is what is important. God does not care what we eat or what we drink. In Christianity, the why you do things is way more important than what we do. It is also not just what we eat or drink, but also all of the matters of a, the conscience, all the things that we can disagree on and have strong opinions on. Those things are unimportant in the kingdom of God. But what is important is building one another up in righteousness, in holiness, in peace, in joy, building one another up in the gospel. We disciple people in the gospel, not in the matters of the conscience. We disciple people in God's word, not in our differing views. The kingdom of God is building one another up in righteousness and peace and joy and in God himself. Verse 22. The faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God. Meaning, don't flaunt your freedom or boast in your strictness. The faith here, again, is not saving faith. We share that with, with all, but it's referring to the person's confidence in a certain issue. If you are free in Christ with a strong conscience, don't flaunt that to others. Don't show off how free you really are. That would be no help to the weak or to the young or to the new Christian. Those with a weak conscience, it's not your job to, to police others. Keep it to yourselves. This is where those who are a stricter mindset are more prone to insist others to hold their view. That you must hold my view in order to be a Christian. And when you do that, you've crossed the line, as we've said earlier, you've crossed the line into serious error of legalism. When you consider things as God's law that God has not required or forbidden in Scripture, you have elevate yourself above the Scripture and above God. Those attitudes will bring division in the church. 
Look at the rest of verse 22. He says, Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. But the eating is not from faith. From whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. A person who lives according to their conscience is blessed. Remember what we said earlier. Our consciences, when well-calibrated, are a gift from God. They increase our joy as we are obedient to them and obeying, obeying as it warns us. God gives us our consciences for our good. As Christians, we need to realize that our Father in heaven is the Lord of our conscience. So let's obey them. Let's obey them. And if they are weak, then yes, let's submit them to God's word. Let's calibrate them. Let's seek guidance on how to shape them. But let's not disregard and sin against what God has given to you to be blessed and to give you to experience joy. Now, on to chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever, whatever was written in former days was written on our instruction, written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning, follow the example of Jesus who put others first. This doesn't mean that the strong always have to agree with the weak. It doesn't mean that the strong never get to exercise their freedom ever again. It's not that the strong have to constantly tolerate the weak, but it says we bear with them in their weakness. It means that we gladly help the weak by refraining from doing anything that would hurt their faith. Verse 2 is not about being a people pleaser who cares more about what others think of them than what God thinks of them. Christian freedom is not, I always get to do what I want. But nor is it, I always do whatever the other person wants. It is, I do what brings glory to God. I do what brings others under the influence of the gospel. I do what leads to peace in the church. That's Christian freedom. And verse 3 sets up for us our supreme example. We cannot even imagine the freedoms, the rights, the privileges that belonged to Christ, and yet the freest person ever to live did not come to please himself. But he came as a servant. He came as a sacrifice so that we sinners could be 
ransomed and saved from the wrath of God that was due toward us because of our sin. He is our perfect, supreme example of giving up one's freedom for another. So to give up our freedom for the sake of another, to bear with one another, is nothing in compared to what Christ did in his suffering on the cross. But to display the gospel, when we bear with one another, we show that our reward is not ultimately in the freedom, in the freedoms that we get to enjoy but we express that our true reward is knowing and having Christ. Romans 15, 7, last one. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We bring glory to God when we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. So do you see the bookends here between Romans 14.1 and Romans 15.7? Welcome him. Welcome him. Welcome him now. Verse 15.7 says, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria, right? Our, 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 our fifth sola. It's what we say we live for. Welcome one another to the two and four, the glory of God. How you treat one another in your differences, in whether you welcome them or whether you judge them or reject them, says what you believe about the glory of God. How you love your fellow Christian in the church says what you believe about the glory of God. Do you welcome them? Are you welcoming to one another in these ways? Welcoming them as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. It really matters how we treat one another when we disagree in the matters of the conscience. On these third level things, it really, truly matters. And on the adverse side of things, when we are welcoming, what is it showing? What is it displaying? What is it radiating from us? The glory of God. The glory of God is seen in how we love one another. How we're caring for one another. How we display welcoming to one another. That radiates the glory of God because it shows the work of Christ in us. God is glorified. And isn't that what we want? How do we relate to one another? That is the question. It can be tough 
to calibrate. It can be tough to relate to one another who disagree on different things. One has a freedom, one has a, a weakness, or, or one who abstains or has a restriction. I want you to see the freedom and the grace that Christ has given to us in his word. And I want you to glorify him as we walk in obedience in these things. But I want you to glorify God as you love one another in these ways. In the church, in this culture of bearing with one another, living together in community, doesn't happen overnight. And we need his grace daily. We need his grace to welcome those who we disagree with. We need his grace not to look down on those who are stricter than we are. We need his grace to not be judgmental toward those who exercise more freedom than we do. We need his grace to be fully convinced of our positions of our conscience. We need his grace to practice our freedoms and restrictions for God's glory and to assume that other believers are doing the same. We need grace to keep these matters in perspective of what is truly important. We need grace to be wise, to not let our freedom destroy the faith of others. We need grace to build each other up in righteousness and peace and joy. We need grace to live according to our consciences and experience blessing. We need grace to follow the example of Christ and to put others first. And so as we need his grace, we pray together as what we have read this morning in God's word. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus. Together, you may be one voice that glorify the God of our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Amen.